How's everybody? You guys doing? Having a good morning so far? Yeah, praise God. Hey, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. It's a dear friend of mine. His name is Danny Kane. Would you welcome him to our platform, please? So Danny, um, Danny's got a great story of, of heartbreak and beauty that God's done some amazing work in his life. And in the middle of this series uh, right now called Gotcha, where we're talking about being adopted into the family of God, Danny grew up an orphan and uh, in, in grew up in, a, in an orphanage. And Danny, can you share just a little bit about what that experience was like for us? Yeah, my, uh, my father had deserted my family when I was five. And my mother tried to raise us, but she had asthma and had trouble finding work. So there'd be three or four days we wouldn't eat, and she, it just really got bad. And she decided that she would give us up, and I was seven years old. Uh, my two older brothers and I went to an orphanage in Springfield at that time. And um, what was it like growing up in the orphanage and having some of those get adopted? And, and tell us your story a little bit with that. Yeah, uh, when we'd be out playing on the playground and stuff, and they'd bring us in and clean us up, and they'd set us on these couches, and people would walk through and smile, you know, and a few days later, one of the kids would be gone. And uh, you thought, wow, why not me? And I, I decided then that I, I didn't want to do it anymore, so they didn't make me, make me do it anymore. So you got looked over, and the thing that you wanted was a family. I mean, in our conversations, what he really wanted was a family, a father figure, something, somebody to pour into your life, and you never, never received that. You, you left the orphanage, never been adopted, right? Right. You got, in, you got drafted into the Army and spent some time over at Vietnam. But what happened three weeks before you left to Vietnam? Well, um, I'd met this gal, and we were dating, and uh, I went off to boot camp and AIT and came back, and it's like, I missed her. And I never missed anybody in my life because I never had anybody to miss. And there was just a hole in my heart. And I thought, what are we going to do? I'm going to Vietnam. So he said, we got three weeks. Let's get married. Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> Danny, women will do that to you, man. <laughs> what else to do? Get married in three weeks. And yeah. So when you came back, though, share with us a little bit about how, what kind of father were you? What kind of husband were you when, you when you came back? Yeah, because I had no father figure. I had no family structure. I didn't know what those were. Um, I wasn't a very good father. I was probably a horrible husband. But my lovely wife stuck with me and taught me how to love. And uh, it, it, was, it was not good. I was angry from all a bunch of, of things that had happened to me. Um, when I was in Vietnam, I didn't care if I lived or died, uh, but God brought me through. So you didn't have a gotcha date when you were a little child, but you had a gotcha date when God intersected your life. Can you share your story of coming to faith? Yeah, um, my wife's grandfather was a really neat Christian guy, even though he was a plumber. He, he looked like Popeye. I mean, the guy had muscles on muscles, and, and he was just a, such a loving guy and, and loved the Lord. And uh, they came over for lunch one afternoon on a Sunday, and he sat across the table for me, and he gives me the line, you know you're a sinner? <laughs> I've heard this one before, and I thought, nah, I'm not going to participate in this, but it's like God took my face and turned it towards him, and everything he said I could not dispute. It was going in my ears and into my mind, and he said, would you like to accept Christ in your life? And I thought, yeah, and it was, it was like, am I really doing this? And when that happened, and that was in 
December 31st, 1971, or three, um, I was fully adopted in the family of God. God gave me the privileges and the rights of a child of God. And when I did that, it lifted a weight and took me, took me more further than I thought I'd ever go in my life. We've been showing you some pictures of Danny's life. And just, just a little side note, when you accepted Christ, I was one. So I uh, just wanted to let you know that. But you are a good friend of mine, Danny, and, and I love you so much, man. And we showed some pictures. You saw his wedding day there. You've seen some pictures of him as a child and, and some pictures of him uh, with, in, the, in the army. And uh, there's some pictures rolling, though, that we saw of you in South Africa ministering some, to some orphans. And I know that, because I know you, they don't, but God has reshaped your life from being an orphan to being adopted into the family of God. And how is he using you now? Uh, to further his kingdom. Yeah, I go back to South Africa every other year. We went this year, and Sean went with me twice. Uh, I don't know why, but I guess he was glutton for punishment. But we have a great time. I get to minister to these children, tell them that God loves them, even though they've been left behind and thrown away, that God loves them and has a purpose for their life, and that they will do great things for for God out of South Africa and Bob and Joanna and the Go-Go's, those grandmas that are raising these kids as families and Bob and Joanna are mom and dad to these children. If you ask them who their mom and dad is, it's Bob and Joanna. And Danny speaks a language to them um, that I cannot speak, which is one of um, being abandoned but now being accepted. And you should see them lean in when he, when he speaks. And one of the things he shared with them the last night with their, we were there was this. He said, did you know um, that I grew up an orphan and that there's orphans in the United States or there's orphanages in the United States and they hardly can believe it. But Danny can lean in and speak some life to these kids. And it's a really encouraging thing to a you're a, you're a, I love you so much. You're a deep man of God. I love what you've become and the way God has shaped you. And we're so stinking proud of who you are and what you mean to our church and to these people in South Africa. So thank you for all you're doing. Could you give him a hand and thank him for being here this morning? Don't you love Danny's story? I mean, it's amazing, really. What a picture of Ephesians chapter one as the Apostle Paul, a former orphan, has such a heart for fellow orphans to want to tell everybody there's a father in heaven that loves them, that wants to adopt them into their family. That's what I love about Danny's story. Listen, he was orphaned physically, always longed for a father and a family. But in 1973, God said, gotcha. And that's the date that you are adopted into somebody's family, not your birthday, but your gotcha date. And I don't know where you find yourself in life today. Maybe you're without a father. But you know what it says in Isaiah 68 and verse 5, that God is a father to the fatherless. And here you have the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 as a former orphan, just like Danny, who has such a heart for orphans, and his message is clear that no one has to stay an orphan, that God, your Father, wants to adopt you into the family, and if you haven't had a gotcha date yet like Danny, today can be the day that God says, gotcha. Welcome to the family. And that's where we've been as we've launched a study into the book of Ephesians. What we've learned is this. It's through the will of the Father that we are chosen for adoption. Remember, you have the great three-in-one. You have the Trinity. And Ephesians chapter one tells us how God is that great three-in-one, wants to adopt everybody. And it begins with the will of the Father. It says this in Ephesians one verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy 
holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how God in eternity past, before any of this was here, before you were here, before the world was here, in his infinite foreknowledge, he foreknew who would choose him when they had a chance to choose him. And right there, he chose them. And he wants to adopt you today. If you've never been adopted, today can be the day that God says, gotcha. But it's not just the will of the Father. Then we learned last week, it's through the word of the Son. Listen, we are chosen to be changed. God accepts you just the way you are, but he's not going to leave you just the way you are. If he's chosen you, he wants to change you. It's the will of the Father, and now it's the work of the Son. It says these words, and Chad talked about this last week as he preached in verse 7. In him, you see that phrase over and over again, over 30 times in Ephesians, in him. Because now you need to know your positional reality as a member of God's family is that you're in him, no longer are you in your sin. And he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. But guess what? That's not the end of the story. Because you have the will of the Father, you have the work of the Son, and today we're gonna see the witness of the Spirit and how the Spirit of God comes to seal you in your adoption. It's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago, that it's only in books like Ephesians and Galatians and Romans where the primary audience of the first century was not Jews, but rather Greco-Romans, Roman citizens, that you see this adoption language. Now, why is it the apostles, when writing to Jewish believers, never spoke of adoption? They would always speak of the new birth. Uh, you must be born again, is what Jesus said. We're born into God's family. And so were the apostles were writing specifically specifically to Jewish believers, they would speak of the new birth because Jews had no culture of adoption. They had no history of adoption. But where these apostles were writing specifically to Greco-Roman Christians, those coming out of paganism in a Roman society as Roman citizens, he speaks specifically not of the new birth or the spiritual birth, but rather adoption. Because Greco-Romans by culture put great emphasis and esteem on adopted children. Did you know that legally, by Roman law, if you were a natural-born child, a natural-born son or daughter, you could be disowned and disinherited by your mother and father? You could be abandoned by your mom and dad, and it was perfectly legal, but if you were an adopted son or an adopted daughter, by Roman law, you could never be disinherited, you could never be disowned, it was signed, it was sealed, it was delivered forever, it was irrevocable, absolutely unbreakable, it was binding forever that you were now an adopted member of that family. And now you can start seeing why the Apostle Paul chooses this adoptive language because he wants you to see as a member of God's family, yes, you've been born into that family, but you've been adopted into that family and it's binding, it's unbreakable, it's irrevocable. You can never be disowned, you can never be disinherited. Aren't you glad that God is not going to leave you nor forsake you? That you have a place in the family of God that will never, ever, ever fade away. It will never, ever decay. Now, he goes on with these words in verse 13. So we're going to pick up our study right there. If you're ready for this, say gotcha. All right, here we go. 
He says this, in him, there's that phrase again, because he wants to compare and contrast who you were before him and who you are now in him, right? He says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let me stop right there and ask this question. Can this be said of you? Is this true of you? Has there been a moment in your life that you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? Hey, let me just celebrate this for a moment. Two weeks ago, as we wade into this deep theology of Ephesians chapter one, this controversial in-house debate within Christ's body, it's been going on for five centuries. You know, you got predestination and you got election and these really weighty topics of, you know, Calvinism and these theological systems. Guess what? After that message, 12 people came and said that day, God, I want to be God. That was the gotcha date. Two weeks ago, 12 people sitting in these seats came forward saying, today is the day. I don't understand all the theology. I just know I need Jesus for eternity, right? Two weeks ago, as Chad preached, I was coming back from our vacation that we went as a family down to Arizona, and as we were driving back through the mountains, it was kind of blinking in and blinking out, but I was watching the service as we were driving back from family vacation, and guess what happened last week? Two more people came and said, God, I want to be adopted. I want to be a member of God's family. That was the gotcha date. Hey, this past Wednesday night, check it out. At a fusion summer kickoff, six teenagers came and said, God, I want you to be my father, and I'm coming by way of the son. They gave their heart to Jesus, and now they know what it means to be an adopted member of God's family. Gotcha dates all over the place. In 1973, here's a man you heard from, Danny Kane, who longed to have a father. He longed to have a family, but he never got adopted. And in one moment, God did for eternity, what no one could have done temporarily, physically, he got a father, he got a family, and that gotcha date came in 1973. Let me ask you, when is your gotcha date? Now, I'm not suggesting you'd have to know the exact date and exact time, like June the 4th, 1973, at four o'clock in the afternoon. No, no, I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, you ought to know in your mind's eye when it happened. You ought to be able to picture the moment that you realized you were a sinner in need of a savior and that you needed redemption and you put your faith in him and in that moment, God placed you in him. You were forgiven of your sin. Can you think of that moment that got you date? If not, today can be the day. You see, God chooses you to change you. And that's what happens when you come to him. Uh, there's so much life change taking place as God is changing those of us that have been chosen in him. You naturally become more like God. When you're part of God's house, when you're part of the family of God and God becomes your father, you naturally begin to grow to become more like your father. And that's what it means when it says in Ephesians 1, you are predestined as sons. Uh, Romans 8:29. what are we predestined to? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so God has promised that once you're in his house and you go through that adoption, you are predestined, having received the son, to become more and more like the son. Uh, there are certain things my kids were predestined to become because they were raised in my house and a part of the father's house. They were predestined. I'm just telling you up front, my children were predestined to become Kansas Jayhawk fans. <laughs> they had no choice whatsoever in the matter. That's right. Uh, my boys were predestined to become meat eaters. 
Yeah, we, we like salad at our house, but, but uh, the, the, you know, we're, we're, we're more carnivores than herbivores. I'm just telling you. It was predestined. See, when you've been raised in somebody's house, you naturally become like the father. You naturally start to, to bear the character qualities of your father. Uh, and so who is our father? Well, first of all, he's a generous father. He's benevolent. Uh, benevolent. He, he is, he's generous. And that's why generosity is one of our core values. You naturally, as you grow spiritually, you naturally start to live more selflessly and more generously. Uh, Dave Williams, our business administrator, showed me something. I, I, I never, I want you to know, I don't know who gives what. I don't know how much any person here gives financially to support the work of the ministry of our church family. Just want you to know that. I've never asked. I don't want to know, and the reason I don't want to know is I don't want to be controlled by money. Does that make sense? Like, if I don't know, I can't be controlled by money. So I don't know who gives what. I have no idea who gives what. Uh, and I don't want to know, because I don't want my opinion of you to change based on how much money you give. You get what I'm saying? But this I do know, if people are growing spiritually, they naturally start living more generously. And he told me this this past week. Over the last four weeks, there have been 51 first-time givers at Abundant Life to support the work of the ministry here uh, at Abundant Life. Here's what it tells me. It tells me people are growing. As you grow spiritually, you naturally start giving more generously. And as you grow spiritually, as a former orphan, guess what? You naturally want to reach other orphans. It's like Danny. He goes to South Africa every year to minister to other orphans because he was an orphan. And as you grow, you begin to realize, as a former orphan, I want other orphans to know the love of a heavenly father that can be known through the work of the son. And so consequently, you begin living missionally and evangelistically, and that's another one of our core values because it's the heart of God known through the Son of God. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. You naturally start to become more like him. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Hey, would you celebrate this with me? 250 members of our church over this past weekend have been working and serving down at Downtown Days and Lee Summit, literally taking out the trash. You guys amaze me. I mean, you make me so proud to be your pastor. You make God proud to be your father because it's living proof to a watching world. And you see, that's what we are. Listen, we want to be that living proof. And Jesus, I'm thinking, is honestly simply saying, hey, sometimes you just need to shut up and serve. Don't just say it. I want you to show it. And that's, you see, what happens when you realize you've been chosen by God. Now you're naturally being changed by God. But check this out. God's not done. He wants you to know the joy of this salvation. Now he goes on, he says this, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's answering this question. A lot of people ask, one of the number one all-time questions people ask, Pastor Phil. Pastor Phil, can I lose my salvation? How do I know once I've been adopted into God's family that I won't somehow be kicked out of God's family? And this is what he's dealing with now. He's answering that question because it's the will of the Father you've been chosen. It's through the work of the Son that you've been redeemed. And now it's through the witness of the Spirit that it's been sealed. He seals your adoption. He himself is the promise of your salvation, the guarantee of that inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so it goes something like this. Now, you guys remember this visual from a week ago, right? This is where God finds us. He finds us as orphans in this world. We've all picked up some really bad habits from the orphanage and our time in the orphanage. Uh, bitterness, 
we pick it up along the way. Shame, lust, selfishness, slander, fear, worthlessness, anger. I mean, we could go on and on up here, couldn't we? This is where God finds us. He looks at us from eternity past, and in his foreknowledge, he sees us in our sin, but he also foreknows that we will choose him, and in that moment, he chooses us. There's the will of the Father, but it's not just the will of the Father. Then there is the work of the Son, and it's in the Son of God that he redeems us with the blood of Calvary so that now he no longer sees our sin. All he now sees is the perfect righteousness of his Son, though our sins be a Scarlet, they can be white as snow. And 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But how do we know that we can't go from here to here over and over again? Because now there's the seal of the Spirit. And you see, the picture is really only complete when you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is to seal that salvation until that day of redemption. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So that now God sees you already as holy. He sees you already as blameless. He sees you already as sinless. Even though practically you're not holy, you're not blameless, you're not sinless because we're still in the flesh. But spiritually, because you're in him, God no longer sees your sin. He now sees one that is white and clean as a child of God and a member of his holy family. And this, you see, is what Paul is now telling us. The Holy Spirit indwells us at the moment of our adoption to seal our salvation and guarantee its completion. Romans 8 9, it says, he that has not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. In other words, if you didn't receive the Spirit of God, you didn't actually receive the Son of God. Because at the moment you receive the Son of God, you receive the Spirit of God. It happened on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God came to live inside of them like he's come now to live inside of me and you. By faith, when you receive the Son, you then receive the Spirit. Now, why do you receive the Spirit? Listen, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what is a seal in ancient days? A seal was something that a wealthy man of status or position or power would have had. He had a signet ring, and that signet ring was his personal seal. So a few months ago, we were in the Holy Land. We went to a site I'd never been to before. It was the ancient city of Herodian, built by Herod the Great a few uh, years B.C. And Herod the Great built this city known as Herodian as a personal playground. And it became kind of a playground for the rich and famous of that day. Now, for years and years, you realize cynics and skeptics really questioned the existence of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, of course, the one that presided over the kangaroo court of Jesus as he was sitting to crucifixion, and they would say, well, there's really no records in you know, Rome that there was ever this governor called Pontius Pilate. Maybe that's just made up. But did you know, in 1969, as they were excavating this ancient city of Herodian, they actually found his signet ring, and this sign is on the very place they found the ring of Pontius Pilate. It says, and you can't read it, but it's his personal seal, and it has his name, Pontius Pilate. You know what I'm telling you? that because I just love it when archaeology catches up to the Bible (laughs) over and over again. Just give it time. The modern science of archaeology will catch up to the Bible. 
See, not only did it prove that this man really lived, but they actually found his ring, the very ring. Now, what would that ring have done? In ancient days, this ring was a seal, his signet ring. It was his personal identity because he's the only one that had that seal. It'd be like today, you have a personal identity that, that authenticates who you are, and uh, it's something given only to you that separates you from the seven plus billion other pe people on the planet. You have a social security number, and you're the only one with that social security number, and it's your personal identity. You know, mine is 495-762948. It's, it's mine. I'm the only one with that one. Do you really think I'm gonna give you my social security number? <laughs> no. I trust you, I just don't trust you that much, okay? Love you, but I don't love you that much. No, that's not my number, relax, all right? It's somebody else's number, you can use it and steal their identity, you're not stealing mine. <laughs> but see, that's what, in ancient days, if you stole the ring, you had their identity. That ring of power, that ring of authority, it was one's identity. And so Pontius Pilate, or another man of stature, or position as he was doing official business, he would have signed his name to those official documents. Now, to prove that it was not a forgery, that it really was his signature of authenticity, he would take some wax and he would drop it next to his signature, then he would take that ring, that signet ring, he'd press it into that wax, and that seal would bring authenticity. It proved that it was really his signature. And then he'd roll that document up into a scroll. He'd take another piece of wax. He would drop it on the edge where that scroll could not be opened without breaking that wax seal. He would take his signet ring and he'd press it in again. And in so doing, he was protecting it from being opened by somebody who didn't have authority. Now, do you see what Paul is teaching us? The Holy Spirit of God is our signet ring. It is the seal of God. He has sealed our salvation to protect it and authenticate it until the day of redemption, the day in heaven that he takes possession of his purchased possession. And you see, he himself is the seal, the guarantee. God is teaching that all three phases of our salvation, while not yet fully realized, have already been signed, sealed, and delivered. In the mind of God, it's already done. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes like it's all past tense. Because even though it hasn't happened yet in time, it's already happened in the mind of God in eternity. And in the mind of God, when he thinks it or speaks it, it's as good as done. All three phases of your salvation are signed, sealed, and delivered, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. What are those three phases of salvation? Listen carefully. If you're taking notes, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, you have the first stage of your salvation to what's called justification. That hope in the moment you receive the Son of God, you were forgiven of your sin. It's called justification because in the eyes of God, it's just as if I'd never sinned happen instantly the moment the spirit is reborn, what Jesus called being born again. It's the salvation of your spirit. But then the second stage of salvation, something called sanctification. Once you have salvation and you're in him, Romans 8, 29 says you are predestined to then become like him. And that's the growth process in your life where you naturally, as you grow spiritually, become more and more like him. You're being conformed and molded then to his image. What's what's called sanctification, and where justification, salvation of your spirit, sanctification is the salvation of the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions. 
See, you don't need your spirit to be reborn. It's been reborn instantly and will be reborn for all of eternity. But now you need to renew the mind. And that's why over and over again, the New Testament doesn't tell you about the mind being reborn because the mind is never reborn. The mind must be renewed, Romans 12 and verse 2. And that's how you're transformed. But check this out. According to Romans 8, chapter 30, uh, chapter 8 and verse 30, there's this last stage, a third stage of your salvation. It's called glorification. And guess what happens? When you finally go to heaven and you finally stand before him, you receive your glorified body. And all of a sudden, you've got the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ, a body that never grows old, never gets sick, and never, ever dies. Some of us here don't like our bodies. Like, I, I don't like my body. I wish I was more like this. I wish I was more like this. Just relax. You're going to get an upgrade. You're going to have the perfect body forever and ever and ever and ever. A body never gets sick, never grows old. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. That hasn't happened yet. But what the Apostle Paul is teaching is that it's been signed, sealed, and delivered. It is absolutely going to happen because the Holy Spirit of God himself is the guarantee. Ephesians 4 and verse 30 puts it this way. He continues to use this language of the seal, the signet ring and the seal. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Just like that ancient king or that man of wealth or power would roll it up in a scroll and then he would seal it with his ring so that it could not be broken until that possession therein was ready to be taken. He's saying, listen, the Spirit of God has sealed you until the day of redemption. And what this means is your sin does not break the seal of God's Spirit. Your sin grieves God's Spirit. Yes, I'm weighing once again into very, very deep waters. It's like Ephesians chapter 1. Paul just throws us into the deep end. Boop. And a couple weeks ago, I'm weighing into the election and Calvinism. Now I'm weighing into this doctrine of eternal security. Here we are. We're in the deep end again. Because this happens to be one of the most controversial teachings of the New Testament. I've learned this, this is one that's very controversial. The good news is I don't have any denominationalism to defend. I have no theological systems to defend. I'm just going to preach the Bible. Yeah. That's the good news. Like, I got nothing to defend here. But I'm telling you this because I've learned this particular doctrine of eternal security uh, makes people angry, makes people mad. Like, Pastor Phil, are you saying uh, you, you believe in that once saved, always saved? No. That's not what I'm saying. Because that once saved, always saved implies something completely different than what the New Testament teaches. Well, once saved, always saved, what you mean by that is this concept that one can pray the prayer and receive Christ or, or maybe get baptized and, and go through the motions and all the rituals and say they're a Christian and all the while think they're going to heaven while they're living like hell. Now, Pastor Phil, that can't be. There's no way somebody can live in sin and rebellion over and over again and still think they're a Christian. And that would exactly be right. It is impossible theologically, it is impossible biblically for somebody who's really been adopted as a member of God's family and you truly are a Christian to live over and over again willfully, daily, repeatedly in a state of rebellion against him. It's an impossibility. No, it's not once saved, always saved. It's something different. 
Because the promise is this, is that if you are really in Christ, you can't be in him and continually over and over again live in your sin. You see, the promise is that you may backslide, but the promise is this, if you do, you will slide back up again. So uh, when I was growing up in church, little boy, there were terms that we used to use back then, used to hear them all the time, you don't hear them a lot today. One of those terms was backslidden, all right? He's backslidden. Some of you don't know the term, you didn't grow up in church, and you're probably better off than some of us who did. But backslidden is a biblical term. It was used a lot by the Old Testament prophets. A backslidden person was one who used to be near to God, but they had drifted away from God. Now they were walking in sin instead of walking with him, and they were called backslidden, right? And I want you to see the promise is that as a Christian, you may backslide, but you'll also slide back up again. And I know what I'm talking about because I've lived this. Now here's the promise. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives, and he that is without chastening is an illegitimate son. Basically what that says is you may have a blast, but it will not last. You may sin, but you cannot win if indeed you're truly a Christian. Because God's going to put it on your little backside. That's right. Uh, we live in a time where spanking our children is taboo. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not taboo with God your father. He puts it on the backside of his little rebellious sons and daughters. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. There it is. Every son that he receives, and he that is out chastening, is an illegitimate son. What's that mean? An illegitimate son is one who says, I'm a child of God, but they're not a child of God. They've been baptized, not really born again, christened, but not really a Christian. They profess Christ, but they don't truly possess Christ. And consequently, they can sin over and over and over again and not feel the chastening or the conviction and God is saying, listen, if you're really my child, I love you too much to leave you there. And I'm gonna put it on your little backside. I'm gonna chasten you until you come back to me. However long it takes, I'm gonna chasten you. He's gonna let you feel the consequence of your sin. And I know what I'm talking about because I've lived this myself. I can think of my gotcha date. I hope you can too. If you can't, today can be the day. My gotcha date came as a six-year-old little boy about 1988, <laughs> give or take a few years. Okay, six-year-old little boy, about 1975. I told you I was raised in church, and these were the days of Sunday night service. And guys, we went to church Sunday morning, then we went back on Sunday night, and Sunday night was like the longest, most torturous three hours of this six-year-old little life. I mean, this service would never get over. I'm six years of age, and it is like torture. If you could be tortured to get into heaven, I was like for sure going to heaven because I was being tortured. That's what it felt like. It really did. Those were the days where, you know, when the preacher got done preaching, the service wasn't over. We were just getting started because there was going to be like 27 verses of just as I am, and we were not going home till somebody got saved. And as a six-year-old little guy, that's when I got really spiritual. I learned to pray, God, would you please save somebody? Please, please save somebody. Please, somebody go forward, anybody. Because we're not going home until somebody goes forward. I'm telling you, this night, I'm six years of age, 1975. And the Holy Spirit of God got all over, all over this little six-year-old boy. 
because I was standing there for the invitation like I had so many times before. And guys, I'm telling you, I could not have explained it theologically. I could not have described it in you know, biblical terms. What was I just knew something was compelling me. Verse one of the 27 to come, bam, I'm there, which was here. Came to the altar that night. Somebody led me to Christ that night. That's when God said, gotcha. Now, by the time I was 16, fast forward 10 years, I'm the prodigal son of Luke 15. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. Here was a son that left the house of the father. He abandoned the family. He walked away, went to a far country, living in sin, finds himself in the pig pen. That was me. I was, by the time I was 16, I'm living in rebellion against God. I'm living in sin. And I wasn't living in open rebellion. I was far too smart to go through my parents. I just went around them. And by the time I went off to school at the University of Kansas, I was living the dream because now I had no curfew. I had no accountability. Now I really am in the far country. And you know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9? That sin is pleasurable for a season. But I'm telling you, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And about two or three years in, I started coming under conviction. Let me ask you, do you come under conviction when you sin? See, I know you sin. We all still sin because we're still in the flesh even though we're in him. But the evidence you're a Christian is not that you will never sin, but rather when you sin, you have a sense of conviction. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And he that is without chastening is an illegitimate son. Well, there was a day of reckoning because I really was a child of God. About three years in, I realized God is stripping me of my idols. My God at the time was football. I serve football. I worship football. For me, football was the key to my future. And football was about self-promotion. It was about self-worship, self-idolization. I was all about self. And all of a sudden, my body began to break for the first time ever, blew out a knee, blew out a shoulder, career was over. You see, God was chastening my backside because I was a son of God. I'd been got in 1975. But I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't give in, just like some of us here. No, God wanted me because I was a child of God. He was chastening me, but I was still on the run. 1989, I'm coming back from KU for Christmas break. I wake up on 435 underneath an 18-wheeler semi. I was in a wreck. I should have died, and somehow I walked out alive. And that was the day the prodigal came home to God the Father. A near-death experience will do that for you. Let me ask you, what's it gonna take for you? What's it gonna take? See, today is a day for the prodigals to come home because whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? If you can sin again and again and again and again, you need to have a little self-examination because you may have never had salvation. At the time, I thought that was the day of my salvation. I mean, that was my gotcha date at 21. But within about three weeks, God began to show me, no, Phil, you really were a child of God all along. That thing that happened when you were six, that was your gotcha date. But I made a promise to be the seal of your salvation and the guarantee of your salvation. And I made a promise to complete that which I started. I chastened you and I wooed you till you repented of your sin and you came back to the Father again. 
You see, that's what God is teaching. Something different altogether than once saved, always saved. This idea that we can get our fire insurance just to get enough of Jesus to stay out of hell, but not enough of Jesus to actually change our life. And that's where a lot of people live in the church. Church is full of false conversions, and I'm doing this today because some of us need to have a little self-examination. Now listen, if God did not seal our salvation until the day of redemption, we would lose it with just one sin. You see, here's the reality. If you're really a Christian, you can't over and over and over again, year after year after year after year, continue to live in rebellion. But the good news is, if you're really a Christian, it's irrevocable, it's binding, it's unbreakable because you've been an adopted member of God's family and you don't have to worry about losing your salvation every time you sin. You see, the reality is that you already positionally are in him, even though practically you still sin. And here's the simple truth. If it was up to us to keep our salvation, there's not one among us that could keep it probably for the next 10 minutes. Think about this. Heaven is a holy place. That means it's absolutely sinless. How many sins then would it take for you to lose your salvation? How many sins? Say it again. Yeah, this is a hint right here. Just one sin, one time. You see why God has to seal our salvation? Because if he did not seal it, not one of us could keep it. Every single one of us would lose it every single time we still sinned. And so God himself seals it. He himself guarantees it. It's not you hanging on to God. It's God who hangs on to you. Look at this picture right behind me. I love this picture that our staff created kind of to go with this series of adoption. I want you to notice the security in the little boy's eyes. He is not remotely concerned about having to catch the hands of his father. You know why? Because he is absolutely certain his father's hands will catch him. And that's the picture that God wants in the life of his sons and daughters, that we're not worried about the Father's hands not catching us. We're not having to somehow hang on to him because we're convinced he is hanging on to us. Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen carefully. It is not grace to get saved and then works to stay saved. And right there is the problem for some of that have been taught you can lose your salvation because the implication is you get saved by grace through faith, but then you got to stay saved through works. And what Paul says is every phase of your salvation is apart from works, and it's a work of God's grace, whether it's justification, whether it's sanctification or glorification, you're saved by grace through faith apart from works. You don't get it by Christ's work and then try to hang on to it by your work because it's all a work of his work. And what is God teaching here? Listen, the king has the signet ring and you have been adopted into his family. He has sealed your salvation until the time in heaven that he unrolls that scroll with your heavenly inheritance and you take possession of that which has been purchased. You see, the simple truth is he says over and over again, verse 13, the Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus called the Spirit of God the Spirit of promise. 
Acts chapter 2, he said to the original 120, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. That happened on the day of Pentecost. The spirit of promise is still among us. He is still within us. The Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day of redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what is interesting, this word guarantee, check it out. In the Greek language, that word guarantee is the same word often used for an engagement ring. You see, he is the signet ring. He sealed it. And he's the engagement ring because he's promised it. Why do you give somebody an engagement ring? What you're saying is, by this ring, I promise to marry you. Even though I haven't yet, I promise I'm going to. See, the Holy Spirit is the seal, the signet ring, and he's also the engagement ring. He's made a promise to you that one day I am going to be wed to you, Revelation 19, 7. I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. And one day I'm coming back for you. I'm coming for my bride, John 14 and verse 6. Last week as I was coming back from vacation, it's kind of blinking in and out, trying to watch the service, but I caught this part. You remember the story Chad told his brother who flew his fiance to Paris to propose to her? And I'm telling you, I was immediately under conviction. Because here's a guy that flew his fiance to Paris to propose, and I took my fiance to a movie. <laughs> Got out of the movie, parked in front of my mom and dad's house, reached under the driver's seat of the car, pulled out the ring, will you marry me? I mean, just so unromantic, completely unprepared, I mean, Really, I mean, let's face it, proposals have gotten more and more flashy. More and more preparation. These young guys, you are doing it right. You really, really are. I mean, my, my son got married about a year and a half ago, and the day before he proposed to Abby, his fiance, he had his mom and dad go out with him to the botanical gardens of Johnson County, and we walked the garden with him, and we walked through the proposal with him. He wanted our opinion, sit right here. I want you to see how this feels, and we'd walk a little farther, sit right here. I want you to give me your opinion. Should I do it here? I mean, we literally walked through this thing with him as he practiced the proposal he was doing the next day. But you know, the good news is, gave me a second chance right there. Baby, will you marry me? Okay, so I redeemed myself, okay? Here's what I want you to see. Listen, some of us don't have a flashy proposal. Danny's got a flashy proposal. I mean, what a story. I mean, what a gotcha story. Some of us don't have that kind of story. It's not flashy, but do you understand that God is more about the follow through than the flash? Hey, I didn't have a flashy proposal, but the good news is I've done pretty good on the follow through. All right, we've been married 28 years. Guess what, we still like each other. Seems like it's gonna work out. Think it's gonna last. See, God's not just about the flash. Anybody can do the flash. He's about to follow through. He says, I'm going to follow through with you. I have given the signet ring to my spirit. He has sealed it. And now I'm giving the engagement ring to you to guarantee it. 
because we are indeed the betrothed bride of Christ. And the only question I have for you is this. It's not whether or not Jesus has said, I do to you. Jesus has said, I do to you. The question is this. Will you say, I do too? God has made his move. The question is, will you make yours? Today can be the day that he puts the ring on the finger and he says, gotcha. Welcome to my family, my son, my daughter. Jesus, I pray for every person here today that God, not one among us, would miss the opportunity before us that will forever impact our eternity. And we're about to leave this place today. But as others are leaving, some of us here need to stay. There's a whole bunch of people at this platform, former orphans, who know the love of a father and a family. And they're here to help other orphans get adopted today. If you're not certain of your destiny eternally, you're not certain today whether or not you really are a part of God's family, today can be the day as it was for me in 1975, as it was for Danny in 1973, and so many others, today can be the day that you walk out with the joy of your salvation, with knowing the joy of eternal security, the joy of having a father, having a family, adopted children, never to be disowned, disinherited. Jesus, I pray for every person here that not one among us would leave still orphaned. In Jesus' name, I pray. Would you give Jesus the glory with me? Praise him, would you? You guys, I love you a whole bunch. I really do. I'm so thankful for each of you. Hey, remember, we're studying the book of Leviticus 4.30 over in the core on Sunday afternoons. God bless you. God go with you. I love you a bunch.